Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. This morning, we're continuing our conversation in, in uh, the book of Ephesians, Artists in Faith, thinking about the, the life that God is crafting. And we mentioned here a couple of weeks ago that in Paul's letters, he devotes largely the first half to theory and theology. This is what God has done. He does not, however, leave us simply with a celebration of the monument of God's goodness, grace, and faithfulness. He says, now, as a result of what God has done, here is what life ought to look like on the other side of that. It's not enough to Instagram the moment of God's grace and goodness. It is now a, okay, now let's get to the gym of the Spirit and let's start to not just try harder, but train smarter so that we can live out the theory of the first half of the, of the, of the books, right? So, so in a book of Ephesians, he celebrates how we are adopted in Christ, how we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Think about that for a minute, how God's devoted love to us is equal to that that he devotes in love to his son, Jesus. You are loved by the Father as much as Jesus is loved by the Father. Hello, that's a good day right there, right? But now what? Now what? Now because you are loved, you don't have to earn it. Now because you are loved, you can do nothing to deserve it. Now because you are already loved in the Father, already partners in his eternal destiny, uh, and you don't have to... Deserve it, you can't, couldn't anyway, but now what? Now what? So what he's going to do in the back half is say, because you are, then you may. Not do this so that you can do this because. Does, does that make sense? And unfortunately, it gets pretty challenging. Uh, I, I say unfortunately because this text, particularly this morning, uh, really starts to uncover some of the ways of deception in my own soul. I hate it when that happens. Uh, but it happens altogether too frequently uh, in the back half. I, I love the theory. I love the theology. I love that everybody gets a trophy. I love that theology in the first half. But now Paul says, now this needs to affect your sexuality. This needs to affect the way you handle money. This needs to, oh, by the way, you've been forgiven? Yeah. So that means you need to forgive. In fact, your forgiving of others is demonstration that you get what has happened in being forgiven. You see how this works out? Anybody else offended already? It's like, <laughs> I probably need to go to another church for the next three or four weeks because we're, he just, he just is ruthless on this. And why? Why? Remember, for Paul, the goal of your salvation is not your salvation. The goal of your redemption is not simply so that you can be redeemed. It's so that you and I can be restored to the purpose for which we were created in the first place and now partner with God in saving the world. This is always instrumental. So he's going to use the language of righteousness and holiness. These are not four-letter words. These are for Paul the whole point Holiness is not about specialness, it's about usefulness. 
The reason he needs us to be holy, living out the theology of the first half, is good. God wants to make use of us in the varying places we are to save the world. This is not unique to Paul. You will probably recognize themes from Jesus in this as well. So that's where we are this morning in, in Ephesians chapter um, five, 4. We have a couple of weeks ago celebrated the unity that is uh, uh, available in Christ. Then we delved into the diversity that flows out of that unity. I love how that, how that works. But now Paul wants to get, um, get, get, get down and dirty with, with the lives that are going to disqualify us to be who we are. You've been adopted into the family. You've been picked up off the street, so to speak. You, you, you were astray, uh, and, and, and you, you, y- y'all are rescue animals, right? You're, you're all, somebody came into the pound where you were in prison and, and saved you, right? But now you have to, now you have to l- live like who you now are, right? You've been adopted into royalty, learned which fork to use. Everybody tracking along with me here? Okay, I'm just trying to think of illustrations to make sense of this. So here's what he says. Verse 17, chapter 4. I tell you this. I insist on it in the Lord. Strong language. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding They are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They have lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ when you were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on then the new self, created, get this, to be like God in righteousness, true righteousness and holiness. This is going to get thick this morning. And I don't apologize for that. I just think if we're going to, the garden has always striven to kind of stay centered in its theological mindset. So I'm not interested in what I grew up with, which was clothesline preaching, hanging out everybody's sins, But I am interested in you paying attention, not for the sake of condemnation, but for the sake of conviction. How many know that guilt is a good thing if you've done something wrong? It's a great gift. Not good if you haven't. We need to train guilt appropriately, right? So Paul wants to draw us, not with condemnation leading to shame, but with conviction leading to repentance, so that, again, we can be useful in the work of the kingdom. You'll notice these themes. So he begins, I tell you this, I insist on it. He is standing both urgently and in his apostolic authority, talking about this from last week. There's there's an apostolic authority, and here he's calling for a change in lifestyle that reflects their new status. Clearly, this was not automatic. 
old patterns, old habits, old practices, old patterns of behaviors are still in place. The muscle memory of destruction still governs much of what we do unless we are trained out of it, right? So it, you, you, can, you, can, you can take the, the Israelite, if you will, out of Egypt, but it takes a while to get Egypt out of the Israelite, right? Actually, 40 years. You can, you can get Israel out of Egypt overnight, but it takes 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. You with me? And so he invites us to start to take this seriously, start to take the journey seriously. He insists on it uh, because uh, he, he recognizes what the stakes are he, here. He wants them to begin to act like the children of God that they actually are. Not to simply relish the fact that that's on their driver's license, on their green card, but that, in fact, this starts to work itself out in the grace and graciousness with which they actually have to live. I don't know if any of you um, uh, are, are aficionados of Netflix, uh, but this past uh, year, Jude and I uh, watched The Crown. Anybody else see that one? This, this, this celebration of the life of Queen Elizabeth and as a Canadian member of the Commonwealth, um, you know, I was there for her uh, uh, silver wedding, uh, uh, not wedding, um, the anniversary of her, her coronation with my family. We were in London at the time. And so, you, you know, I've always, we, you always have this fascination. Of course, it's, it's part of the paparazzi, part of the, part of the world that we live in to have fascination with this. But what that series did behind the scenes was show us the journey and whatever you make of it, whatever you think of it, but it was fascinating to me, the journey from when she was a child to when she became the Queen of England, the Queen of the Commonwealth. And it was a, and, and sometimes a very painful, yes, a very painful learning for the sake of the monarchy which was bigger than she was. And so this is what Paul invites us in some measure to, Yes, you are an individual with inestimable worth. Now, get over yourself. Like everybody else. Now, why does that matter? Because there's something as a part of the body of Christ for you to do. And you don't get there by celebrating your wonder. You get there by putting your wonder on the shelf and getting your hands dirty in life change. So this is what he invites us into. And he says, don't live like the Gentiles. Uh, remember, for Paul, this, this term functions in a couple of ways. One, he's a Jew, so the Gentiles previously were viewed as those who were outside of the promises of God, etc., etc. Now he, and I love how he does this, he has in chapter 2 suggested that there, the idea of Gentiles is no longer necessary. The idea of Jews is no longer necessary. Because in Christ, there are no Jews and Gentiles anymore. So that frees him up to use the language of Gentiles to talk about people who are not yet disciples of Jesus. To talk in, in a broader category, who have not yet chosen to start to follow him. And he says, when you've, you all, and remember he's speaking to a mixed audience about Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying to those Jewish disciples who have not yet begun to bring their lives in alignment, that you guys are functioning as Gentiles. You're, you're out there 
behaving in if 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 the muscle memory of faith has not begun to condition how you how you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat your kids, how you engage with your employees, how you how you handle uh, your uh, finances, how you manage pride, how you how you make your income. If it doesn't percolate down into that reality, it's it, it, you 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 fit into the category of those who still are viewed as outside. Here's the marks of this. In case you are interested, he says they are futile in their thinking. Please notice what Paul is doing here is playing with an Old Testament wisdom tradition that says there is a class of person who lives as if there is no God. They are called fools. Futility of their thinking puts those folks in that category. That's what he's after here. They are living as if there is no God. Now, nobody in the ancient world said there was no God. You don't have to say it if in your heart you believe it. It will soon become evident that what drives your decisions is not fear, awe, respect, honor of God as Father, but your own futile, foolish thinking and understanding. One of the primary marks of this in our culture, according to Paul, or excuse me, according to the Psalm, Psalm 1, is that we move very quickly from taking advice from folks who are outside of covenant to making excuses for self-destructive behavior for ourselves and others until finally we send, find ourselves sitting around with nothing better to do than ridicule everybody and everything. It is easy to criticize the quarterback when you've never thrown a football. And, and Paul says, this is where our lives are going. You're circling the drain here. As soon as you cut off the essential knowledge, the, few, the, the essential knowledge of who God is, it is a matter of time before you start circling the drain of your own life. Why? Because he is the source of our life. That's why it's futile thinking. And again, it's not that you're stupid. There are a whole boatload of highly educated fools, right, it, it, who, who, who use their thinking to justify the futility of their minds. And Paul says, don't be theying. That's you guys. It's not them. It's us. As it demonstrates in our lives. And the result is they're separated from the life of God because of that ignorance because of the, and, and the, the word in behind here uh, is the word from which we get our agnostic. They think they know, but really they don't know, right? Uh, and, and the result of that, and the, the, the cause of that ignorance at the end of the day is what? Do you catch it? Do you have it up there? Yeah. Thank you. Hardening of their hearts. Do you catch what he's doing here? Paul's genius. Anybody else besides me find a perfectly good reason to do everything you do, even if it's destructive to you? It seemed like a good idea at the time. And Paul says what that produces over time when you really want to do something that you know is harmful and damaging to you, you will find a way to do it, 
and you will find a way to shut off the part of you that says, uh, really? Really? This is, what, this is what you want to do? Really? That's dumb. That's really dumb. Last time you did this, it didn't work. Right? You know people who have tried the, what you're thinking of here. It didn't turn out so good from them. Hello? 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 <laughs> and the best way is just to hang up on that heart. Just hang up. Don't return the emails. Put them on the block caller list. And we find ways of doing that all the time in all kinds of ways, or is it just me? That hardening of the heart produces what? Ignorance. Which produces what? Well, Paul goes on and says, the circling of the drain of their own lives is that having lost all, catch it, sensitivity. They don't do life by nuance. They don't do life by sensitivity. The result is they've given themselves over to sensuality. Notice the connection? When you lose sensitivity, when you lose the genuine pleasure that comes from proper alignment, all you're left with is the sensual pleasure that is about endorphins and about pleasure unrelated to relationship. And he's using strong language here. I, I, um, I wish I could translate it accurately in English, but that would turn this into a P, well, no, it would probably veer into the R category. It's a polite language, debauchery, where we are completely disconnected from relationality when it comes to sexuality. When we care nothing about proper or right, that feels like granny language to us. And Paul says, guys, 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 this isn't what you were built for. This isn't God, how God intended you to manage your sexual identities. And, and it's not just about sexuality, but Paul uses that language because in Ephesus, as in Long Beach, that's still one of the primary ways of self-destruction. And can I just, let's not think that if and when we get married, all of that problem goes away. Let's be clear that, that sexuality in marriage is just as challenging and arguably more so than sexuality and negotiating the reality of chastity before marriage. That it is chaste behavior is as needed as much in marriage as it is needed before marriage. Right? So, so Paul just invites us, look guys, look in the mirror here. What are you seeing? What are you seeing? knock on the door, see if anybody answers. Because the outcome of this, having lost sensitivity, giving themselves over to sensuality, now they begin to indulge in every kind of impurity. In Corinthians, he's going to say, we shouldn't even be talking about this in a public realm. Where, 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 where people have so objectified their own bodies that they no longer treat either themselves or their partners as persons. They're nothing more and nothing less than the roles that they play in the fantasies of self-destruction. Can you say Fifty Shades of Grey? That's what Paul's getting at here. Unless we go them, 
let's remember, he's not talking to them. He's talking to the people who are already in the community of faith, already disciples of Jesus, who now need to start to train away from the muscle memory of self-destruction towards the muscle memory of righteousness and holiness. Is that making sense? And he invites us into this again. Uh, 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 oh, and by the way, there's one more real concern for him, and that is that they're greedy. Do you notice what he's done here? The two primary ways of self-destruction are sexuality and money. Now, fortunately, this is the ancient world, and we've dealt with these convincingly here in Long Beach. Yes? This is no longer an issue for us, so I don't know what Paul would write to the church in Long Beach, but not this. Duh. Not so much. These are still the demons we battle. These are still the dragons that roam the streets of our soul. Yes? Right? Not these alone, but these is paradigmatic of others. So, he says, this is not the way you learned life in Christ. This is not how you learned your life from him. This is not how you were taught in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. In fact, you were taught to put off that old self, to stop it. And of course, it's not about willpower. It's not about trying harder. It's about training smarter. And it's about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your training smarter. We've talked about, is it helpful to think about the difference between trying and training? Right? Can we talk about that for just a sec? Um, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a uh, my favorite illustration of this is, is a, a friend of mine who's a, who runs marathons. And what if he called me up one morning in March and said, Bill, we're doing a, I've got a bib, meet me downtown Los Angeles. Put on your running shoes and, and join me. And I said, you know, Carlos, I, 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 I don't have anything to do for the next three or four hours. I, that sounds like a plan. <laughs> and I showed up right down there, and I got my little bib with my number on it and everything, right, with the, with the little chip in there so they know when I die, and, 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 and away we go, and away we go, right? And the, the gun sounds, and tens of thousands of people swarm the streets, and I'm carried aloft, right, by the, by the press of the crowd. My feet barely touch the ground with every, it's just wonderful, and then all of a sudden, it starts to thin out a little bit, and my feet touch the ground, and Carlos, who's been running marathons for years, and I'm like, how far do you think I would get if I tried really hard? Well, what if, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> what, what if, you know, call the paramedics, right? Um, what if instead he called me in August or September and said, there's a marathon in March. I'm picking you up tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, and we're going to walk around the block. And the next morning, I'm going to pick you up at 6, and we're going to walk around two blocks. And over the course of the next six, seven, eight, nine months, we are not just going to try harder. We're going to train smarter, right? 
when I walk with guys, men and women, out of pornography, it's not just about trying harder, it's about changing the patterns that have led to self-destruction. It's about paying attention. It's about inviting Jesus into the chaos. He's the only one who can empower you, not simply to beat yourself up with shame. Can I just put a plug in here? I think shame is more damaging than sin is. Sin is really easy to deal with. Self-destruction, really easy to deal with. When I've done something, even deliberately and with malice aforethought, and I ask forgiveness, I discover it's already been offered before I ask. And I can repent and move away. But shame will take me out of the game for weeks because it attaches behavior to character. It's not just that I did something wrong, it's that I'm wrong. It's not just that I did something bad, it's that I'm bad. It's not just that I did something worthy of punishment, it's that I'm being punished. And because God's not doing it, see the cross, we're done here, nothing to see, move on, I'll do it myself. That's shame. Do you see how that works? And so Paul said, we're not interested in that. We didn't learn Christ that way. It's this is not the solution to what we were talking about before. The solution is to put on, to learn, to train into the way of Christ, which is putting off your, your old self. That old self is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And let it be made new. Notice what he says, in the attitude of the mind. He's not, while external behaviors are critical, we don't necessarily start there unless they're uh, egregiously uh, uh, damaging. It's good not to lie. It's good not to cheat. It's good not to whatever, right? And he's going to go down the list here. But what we're really after is a change at the heart level a change at the attitudinal level, because once we get a hold of that, it will work itself out in changed behavior automatically. Right? It's a change of attitude. Transformation. You hear echoes of Romans chapter 12 here, if you are familiar with that text. So, so when he invites us into this, this, this is, again, not easy. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, which he's already talked a lot about, uh, given to us as kind of this down payment um, and, and the outcome of this is, is that we are made new in the attitude of our minds so that we can then put on the new self. This is, this is not just, in other words, choosing against sin. It's choosing for righteousness. That new self is created. Again, let's, let's sit with it. To be like God. To be created, recreated again, to be reconciled, to be redeemed to the image of God that you were built for in the first place. Now, because we are so far from home, because our souls have been shaped, trained by conforming, by conforming to a strange and foreign land, when the image of God begins to be restored in us, it feels strange and awkward. but you'll get it. You'll get it. You keep speaking the language that was originally your heart language and soon you become fluent in that language. 
Do you see what I'm after? Even if you've been in a country for decades that doesn't speak that language and you've forgotten all of the vocabulary, you've forgotten all of the grammar, you've forgotten all of the rules of construction, if you learn that heart language and now find yourself back home again, even though it feels awkward and painful and difficult, it will not be long before without thinking about it, you are speaking the language of home. And that's what Paul invites us to. You, you, you are created to be like God. Come on. Let's partner with him for that outcome because saying no to sin is not the same thing as being righteous. And this is challenging because I spent most of my, my sermons I heard growing up were stop sinning. Nobody bothered to explain. That just gets you to zero. The goal is not to not sin. The goal is to be righteous. Because here's where usefulness kicks in. Here's where partnership with God in saving the world kicks in. Here's, here's where the life of the kingdom begins to be lived in. And so when you're spending most of your time trying not to do something, anybody else tried that? Doesn't work very well. So Paul doesn't say, just put off the old self. He says, put on the new self. Right? Train into new ways of being. This then becomes less and less and less of a problem, an invitation, and a challenge. What was once appealing and attractive to you no longer has attraction. Because you have replaced the affections that were deadly and destructive with affections that are life-giving. James K.A. Smith uh, in his wonderful book called Training, or Desiring the Kingdom, uh, or the newer version is We Are What We Love, says that what we need to do is not simply stop doing wrong, but let our hearts be trained by the power of a greater affection. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul's inviting us into. Again, why? Well, because there's work to be done. This, this, isn't, this isn't a luxury cruise. We're actually going somewhere. God really means it when he invites us to share with him in the journey of redeeming, of saving the world. Holiness, then, is usefulness. If there's no fundamental difference in behavior, attitude, disposition between you and everybody else, you're not going to be helpful in saving them from the self-destruction. This is why it's important for uh, those of us who are disciples of Jesus in this hostile political climate that we do not allow ourselves to view the political realities in the same way that everybody else does. We can't afford to, not if we're going to be useful. Do you, do you see what I mean? That it, 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 if, if, if there's no, Jesus said, what happens if salt loses its saltiness? It's not good for anything. What happens if light is covered? What, it functionally is not light anymore. Holiness then is not about specialness. It's about usefulness. D does, that, does that make sense? Uh, and, and, and sometimes that's challenging, isn't it? Because uh, it, 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 we've relegated holiness to religious language. No, 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 no. Holiness is as down 
and earthy as you can possibly imagine. It just is that it manages life differently. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.